Church, it is always good to gather together, and we are in the midst of a sermon series right now, so hopefully you're enjoying us as we've come together, and we're talking about miracles, and I was thinking about this, you know, being in the midst of this series, um, some of us in the, the miracles we've talked about so far, it seems like those miracles are for other people, or we come in thinking, what God, what are you going to do for me? And uh, it's, it's easy to get caught up in the, all right, Jesus, I need you to work in my life. I need you to work in my life. And, and um, we open up these, these, the God's word to look at this thinking, what am I going to get out of it? What, what, what is God going to bring to me today? And, and, and I'm going to ask you this right now. Let's not have that attitude today. Because the attitude I pray we have is, God, I want to see what you're doing because I want to worship you more. God can do amazing things and does amazing things in our lives, but that's not why we're here. It's like, I want God to change my life today. No, I want God to be magnified today so that when I have my worries and my hopes, I can go to a God that is huge. Yes, he can change my life, but it's not about the miracles that he's doing. It's about that God is a miraculous God. And an awesome God. So as we as we continue to look at these miracles, keep that in mind too. It's not just well, what can He do for me. It's no, no, no. It's who is God. It's who is God. He is big. He is big. Amen. Amen. Right. Speaking of big, something going on tonight. Supper, right? That's big. Or, I mean, super. That's it. Super. Super Bowl. Yeah, that's the big thing, I guess. If you're a fan of sports um, and you've just been looking forward to this, you are amidst millions across the globe and not just the United States that are looking forward to this. And maybe some of you are like, no, I'm still protesting the NFL and I don't like them and they make too much money or they take a knee and I, I'm mad at them. I, I get it. So some of you are looking forward to it. Some of you don't care. You're going to be watching something on Netflix or else or you're going to be reading or just um, having a snowball fight. I don't know. Um, but the media frenzy is the greatest that it will ever be during this Super Bowl. Um, the stakes are higher. And uh, the viewing rates are off the charts, right? Uh, and advertising is ridiculous, is it not? And, and I say that because I was checking my resources this week to find out how much people pay for commercials for Super Bowl. So I found out last year, 2017, that a 30-second commercial, now most commercials are about a minute, but a 30-second commercial spot will cost you $5 million, okay? So... I was thinking about this, just to put your commercial out there, that cost you $5 million. I think, wow, that is a lot of money. So I'm looking at the statistics, and it says that 83% of the commercials that are viewed are viewed as pure entertainment. So when those commercials come up, 83% of us in the room are like, it's just entertainment. Only 10% of the people that are watching actually go out and buy into the product. So when you talk about return of investment, it's not a very good return of investment if you're a business person, Okay. So, there, so I was thinking about this, and we had um, we got together uh, yesterday in Indiana with my mom celebrating her 86th birthday. So all the siblings got together, took her out to eat, and we're sitting there and talking. To my one brother, he works for Frito Lay Pepsi, and uh, he's, he's sort of high up in in the chain. And and I said, hey, you know, I've got I've got a business proposition. I want to throw your way. Just thinking, because I knew uh, Doritos, Frito Lay, Pepsi, they make a lot of commercials, and and so I'm thinking, you know. Last year, you guys spent over $5 million just on a 30-second spot. I want to save you, and, and only 10% of people actually bought into it. So I want to save you guys a lot of money. How about you make a donation to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA, and for a million dollars, 
that's chump change compared to five, right? And we will start distributing Doritos and Pepsi at every FCA huddle and event. <laughs> We're putting a product right in our hands. I mean, I think that's good advertising. And we'll even change our name from uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes to uh, Frito-Lay Christian Athletes or something. I don't know, Frito Chips or something, Christian Athletes. Um, and he's like, no. And I don't, he didn't talk to me the rest of the night, but no, he did. But he's like, you've gone too far, Rex. I just thought, I mean, trying to help you out because this is a big event. I was actually surprised he ate with us because usually he's got a lot of things going on because it's such a big weekend, right? But not as big as something that took place a couple thousand years ago. We think these things are big. This story is small compared to what we're going to read about now. Turn to John chapter 6. Here's something that was even bigger than a Super Bowl. Bigger than teams coming together. Bigger than the amounts of money that gets spent every year for something as a sporting event or a music event, whatever it may be. This event is so big that each of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each of them wrote about this big event in their book. Matter of fact, this is the only miracle that all four writers wrote about. They all wrote about different miracles, but all four of them wrote about this miracle alone. John chapter 6. Let's read this, starting in verse 1. After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias, A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed on a hill. He sat down with his disciples around him, nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Now, if you are reading from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about this this story as we're just getting started here, you're going to find out that each of them contains certain details And so we know this, it's not made up, it's not in a far, far away land or once upon a time or it's a fable with some kind of application to it, okay? We know this is a true story, but what John does is a little bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John gives us, not just uh, records the moment here, but the location and some very high details, but he includes a date. He talks about the Passover, Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Passover, you have to go back to Old Testament times to the book of Exodus. And John is the only one that talks about this. So we think, well, what's the Passover all about then? Why is he bringing this up? So you go back to the Passover. And the Passover was marked at the beginning of the period when Israel left Egypt. So all these people are slaves in Egypt. Moses comes in. They free them. They take them out into the wilderness. They celebrate the Passover before they left Egypt. These people move into a location, the wilderness, where they are going to be physically and spiritually dependent upon God. Because in the wilderness, they will have temperatures during the day that will get up to 140 degrees. And at night, it will be freezing. There are no towns. There are no stores. There's no food supplies. There's no water. They are physically dependent upon God for everything. They are spiritually dependent upon God to follow and worship him, right? In John chapter 6, verse 2, now we fast forward a few thousand years. And we discover this when you read the sense of the Greek verb here that says they kept following Jesus. Was it a one time? They were continuing to follow him. He's like, he'd go left, he'd go left, he'd go right, he'd go right. Wherever Jesus was going, they were just going. They continued to follow him because it says... 
they most likely continued to see things they've never seen before. They saw his miracles. They heard his teaching. And they were so hungry for truth. They were so hungry for what he was giving that nobody else had ever given before. So they were becoming almost dependent upon Jesus spiritually, but not so much like we saw physically in the Old Testament, right? But with Moses and with Jesus, I pause and think we're sort of like them. Because we too have depleted resources at times. There's certain certain shortages that we have, things that maybe we don't have that other people have. It happens. But obviously we are not as bad as the people in the wilderness. We have beds. We have a, a constant supply of food and water available to us. They didn't have that. Right? But today, what we lack is maybe more maybe emotional resources. We're short-tempered. We're, we have nervous breakdowns. We, we have these uncontrolled emotions. And, and we are somewhat, though, like them in the sense that we are dependent upon God as well. We are not independent of a mighty God. They were not. We are not. So we recognize that, like the New Testament, like the Old Testament, we all have needs. And when we recognize our physical, emotional, and spiritual needs, we have a better understanding here of what's going on. And in this moment here, these people were looking not just for a Savior, they were getting hungry. They've been following around, like the people in the wilderness. They're like, well, we're getting hungry now. Supper time. Haven't eaten in a while. Who knows if they had lunch? Who knows if they had breakfast? Right? Look at verse 5. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he said, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. Isn't that great? It's like, hey, Philip, what do you think we should do? Jesus like, I already know. Wouldn't that be tough hanging out with Jesus? I mean, he knows everything before you're going to say it, right? Hey, Jesus, what do you... Oh, you already knew I was going to ask you that. Or Jesus like, hey, what do you think? Jesus, you already know the answer. Why are you asking me? It would be so hard, right? So I don't know the relationship with the disciples at this point in time, at the beginning of their journey with Jesus, how much they understood Jesus being the Son of God, knowing all. I don't know if this is something they discovered as they went along or right away. Verse 7, Philip replies, Well, even if we work for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Now, I often attend a lot of leadership training uh, seminars and workshops for continuing education, for what I do, obviously, with the church and for what I do with FCA. But one of the things that I, I do when I go to these things and learning about leadership, I also enjoy meeting with businessmen, church leaders, and coaches because those people are on positions of leadership. Whether they're successful or not, you can always learn from people. But what I've learned from successful businessmen and successful coaches and successful church leaders is they know how to manage people well. You could put two teams side by side, winning and losing, and you sort of sit down with the head coaches and you sort of discover why that may be. It could be skill, could be talent, could be their schedule, whatever. Sometimes, though, it's leadership management. A successful coach will surround himself with a lot of great assistant coaches and a lot of great volunteers. And he pours into them and they manage well. An unsuccessful coach may just try to do it all himself and not involve anybody else. And then that leads to a lot of issues. It happens in businesses. It happens in churches. It happens in in coaching. And in this story, Jesus could have done it all. But instead we see leadership management being done here at Jesus. 
you know, he is God in the flesh. He can do anything. He doesn't need to involve anyone. I mean, you think about this. He's got this crowd of people. Now, we're going to read in a little bit here that there were 5,000, but that was 5,000 men because they did not record women and children. So if you were to do the math and figure it out, it would probably be about 20,000 people. But we have 20,000 people in front of Jesus, and he's going to feed them. How? He's Jesus. He can do anything he wants. If he wanted to, he could snap his fingers and, and double bacon cheeseburgers could fall from the sky, okay? And French fries could grow up from the ground. They could sit there plucking French fries in them and grabbing burgers. And they would be saying, I don't know what this is. This is going to be invented for a couple thousand years, but it's awesome, okay? Right? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't, like, make food appear in their pockets. They're like, oh, fish, bread, awesome. He didn't have them sit down and say, everybody check underneath your chairs. I got a surprise for you. Oh, a happy meal. He, he could have done anything. He's Jesus, right? And I don't mean to be joking about it, but seriously. Well, I'm joking. Okay. But really, okay, he could have done anything. Let your minds wander. It's like, wow, that could have been super fun. I mean, if to see him do something like that. But instead, he's like, you know what? I can do all that. I'm not going to. Instead... I'm going to get other people involved in this. And again, I want to hear you hear this now before we get to the end of the sermon. Sometimes miracles aren't the miracles that God's going to do in our life. It's God doing miracles through us as we work in the lives of others. Sometimes God wants you to be involved in somebody else's life for a miracle and a life change. Think about this as we get into this, okay? So Jesus, the heavenly manager, engages all these different people. There are three specific people that he engages in this story directly. We have Philip, we have Andrew, and we have this little boy. So let's look at Philip first. Jesus begins by asking Philip this question. How are we going to feed all these people, right? Now, Philip, why did he ask Philip? I don't know. Some believe because Philip was from a nearby town. that was about nine miles away. uh, Besida was right there, and that's where Philip's from. So maybe go to Philip. Philip's familiar with the territory. He would know who, what, where, right? So Philip's knowledge of the situation was very accurate. He goes, 200 denarii would not feed these people uh, more than six months' wages, right? So he's figuring out, okay, the number of people, the amount of wages it would take to buy food for these people, and he's like, I'm doing calculations, Jesus. We don't have enough money. Even if we did have enough money, um, we wouldn't have any locations around here, any stores to buy it from. Even if we did have the stores to buy it from, they would not have enough food in those stores stocked to feed everybody. Good job, Philip. You know, he was very impressive with all that knowledge, right? He was a man of figures. He was believed in what people said, oh, great, statistics and, and tables. He could do all that. Um, but there's a certain amount of calculation that Philip left out of the story. Calculated everything out, but you know what he left out of the equation? Jesus. You throw Jesus in the equation, that changes all the numbers, right? Philip thought in terms of money. How much money is it going to take to carry out God's work in a small way? We often think of, I believe, God the same way. We look for, how can God work in the smallest of ways in our ministry? Jesus wanted us to have a completely different approach, and he wanted to provide in a big way. But sometimes I think, I think, I think too small. When I'm working on a budget for the church or working on a budget for for FCA, I'm thinking, how much ministry can we do on the smallest amount of dollars that I have to raise. I don't like raising funds, so if I could raise a small amount and do a lot of ministry, how much can I do? 
What if God is saying, stop that? I want you to do a lot of ministry. And it's okay to have the resources to do it. Quit thinking small. This church just voted 100% yes on our budget. Okay? Why? I don't know. Some, you know, our last two votes, we've had 100% votes, which is awesome, okay? But we're going to have to have a vote here soon where people start voting no. So the next ballot might read, should we buy Pastor Dave a new sports car? Okay? Then the way a lot of you can go, that's a no. I'm voting no. No, okay? As much as Dave would like a car, or maybe not. But we all voted yes. Why is that? Maybe our budget's too small. Maybe our numbers are too comfortable. Maybe our vision is small. Maybe God says, I want to do greater things through this church for my kingdom. And you're going to have to put your budget a little bit bigger. I know we got the building to pay off and all that kind of stuff, but is God big enough to pay off this building and do more? Yes. But don't we get caught in the trap of, oh, that's so big, is it? Is that too big for God? Philip was doing the calculations. 20,000 people. How are we going to feed 20,000 people? We're like, man, how are we going to do a cookout for 200 people? And God's like, are you kidding me? I can handle 2 million people. Philip knows the area. He has uh, no place to buy the food and calculates all this stuff and gives his answer. And like Philip, I, I think we do the same thing in our own personal lives. Step away from the examples I just gave. Look at your own life. A bill comes in the mail. Oh boy, how are we going to pay for this? Situation comes at home between you and your spouse or your kids. How are we going to fix this? There seems to be a shortage of resources there, whether it's, whether it's a physical or emotional response. It's like, I'm really short right now on this. I don't have the patience. I don't have the peace. I don't have the money. I don't have... And we're short when we do the calculations. Are you following me on this, church? And we go to our calculators. We go to our self-help books. Do we go to Jesus first? Jesus, this is where I'm short. I'm short on my emotions right now. I'm short on sleep. I'm short on money. What is it? Whatever it is, Jesus is what I'm short on. And I know you are a God that multiplies and provides. And I'm bringing this to you first. James Boyce said this, Knowledge can be a blessing, but it can also be a handicap to trusting the Lord. When placed in Christ's hands, it's valuable. When trusted in itself, it is not. It's as if we can have all this knowledge like Philip to figure out all the answers, but we, have, we still can't get a solution. That's because well, we use all this knowledge, but is it knowledge? Have we given that to God? Have we placed it in his hands? Jesus is the ultimate manager, and he presents the situation. He approaches Philip, and Philip calculates the situation, but he presents no solution. What do we do? This should have been um, no question of doubt for Philip. He should have thought, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jesus, you just healed a paralyzed man. You turned water to wine. You healed that royal official's son who was 20 miles away. You can do that. You, I think you can do this. If you can do all these things, is anything too big for you, Jesus? But that wasn't Philip's reply. He must have forgot what God had done in those, or Jesus had done in those previous miracles. Or maybe 
he remembered and the disciples remembered what Jesus did, but they thought, but you know what? Maybe, maybe Jesus does miracles for other people, not for me. His royal official son, the wedding couple, the paralyzed man, and he's naming these all people off. Did any of those miracles benefit the disciples? No. So maybe the disciples think, Jesus, you do things for other people and we just watch. We cheer you on. Maybe that's what God's people do. We just expect the miracle to go out to somebody else and never to us. Maybe that was their thinking. What we have in front of us in the Bible, or pages in front of us, remind us that God can do anything. Whether we remember what God's done in the past or, or not, we know when we look at the Word, God can do anything. Nothing is impossible with Him. Amen? Turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. Old Testament. So it would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book in the Old Testament. The book of Numbers. This is a, a great story here. Uh, this is going back to the story of the children of Israel. They're out in the wilderness, sort of like I started here at the beginning of the sermon. It describes how God provided for the children of Israel. When they had left Egypt, they traveled through the wilderness. God provided basically takeout. <laughs> For two million people every day. Now, when they left, they didn't leave with a storage bin of food, refrigerators, coolers, chucked full of food. They're heading into the wilderness, two million people. How are we going to feed two million people? Good luck, Moses, right? That's a big job. So, God intervenes, God helps. As you read through that that story in Exodus and and into Numbers, you'll realize that God gave them manna. Manna was this this small seed which they made into cakes, tasted like uh, pastries baked with olive oil. Uh, No pun intended, but it was was heavenly, right? We we often, uh, or I've often maybe said, I wonder what manna tastes like. It came directly from God when they made this, you know? What is it like, Krispy Kreme donuts only better? I'm imagining so. I, I don't know. I know it was super good, right? And although God provided day after day after day, guess what happens eventually? They complain. Hey, honey, what are we having for uh, lunch today? Manna? Yep. It's like Thanksgiving the day after and the day after. Now imagine two months after, three months after, and you're still eating turkey, right? Manna again, manna again. Look what happens in verse 8. These people are complaining, all of them. They're complaining to Moses. They're complaining to God. So God says, Moses, get the leaders together. We're going to have a little chat. Gets them together, verse 8. Say to the people, purify yourselves for tomorrow. You will have meat to eat. Oh, you were whining and the Lord heard you when you cried, Oh, for some meat, we were better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat. And you will have to eat it. And it won't be just for a day or two or for five or ten or twenty. You'll eat it a whole month until you gag and you're sick of it. For you've rejected the Lord who is here among you, and you have whined him, saying, Why did we ever leave Egypt? But Moses responded to the Lord, There are 600,000 foot soldiers here with me, and yet you say, I'll give them meat for a whole month? Even if we butchered all of our our flocks and herds, would that satisfy them? Even if we caught all the fish in the sea, would that be enough? Then the Lord said to Moses, Has my arm lost its power? Now you'll see whether or not my word comes true. Oh, don't you love that? God's like, excuse me? Has my arm lost its power? 
Oh, I'm, you're tired of manna? I'm going to give you meat. I'm going to give you meat today, tomorrow, next, 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 and for a whole month until you gag on it. I don't know if that's the way he said it, but I mean, you can sort of feel that tension from God coming. You want, I'm going to give you something besides manna. Mm-hmm. And then Moses like, Moses didn't complain about that situation at first. He's most like, I've got 600,000 foot soldiers. If we went hunting every day and fishing every day, we would still not have enough food for a month to feed everybody. Where's that kind of meat going to come from? How's this going to happen? And that's when God says, Forget about this arm. Has it lost its power? Is it just hanging there? I don't think so. Love it. How often have we seen a deficit, a lacking, a shortage, a situation where we seem like, ah, there's just not enough, or uh, God, what's going to happen here? This, this isn't working out. We wonder, how, 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 how? And God's like, how? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that I'm God? Has my arm lost power? Have I lost power? Look at verse 31. The Lord sent a wind that brought quail from the sea and let them fall all around the camp. For miles in every direction, there were quail flying about three feet above the ground. So the people went out, they caught quail all day and throughout the night and all the next day too. No one gathered left than 50 bushels. 50 bushels. You're gathering 50 bushels of quail. That's a lot of quail. They spread the quail all around the camp to dry. Now, we don't have an exact number of how many quail, but they're flying in at three feet high everywhere, and you're like, boink, boink. You just grab them, they're dropping, and they're like, you got bushel baskets full, 50 per person. Now, imagine this camp. Again, 2 million people. How big of a campsite does it take to put 2 million people in? I'm just going to say big, okay? So you got this huge campsite, 2 million people, Probably a good walk from one end to the other. And quails flying in all over the place. Probably knee high, I don't know, deep. I mean, if you're gathering up 50 bushels per person, that's a lot of quail. Do the math, right? You read that story and you go back to Philip. Hey, Philip, including your calculations for thousands of people, is this too difficult for Jesus? No. If God can take care of 2 million people with all that quality, do you think he can take care of 20,000 people? I think so. I think so. So let's go back to the book of John. Turn back to John chapter 6. We look at verse 8. We have our first character that was Philip that Jesus is managing. Now who's this next person that Jesus is going to manage? It's Andrew. It's Andrew. Verse 8 says, Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Now, Andrew doesn't have anything to offer, but he is willing to go look for a solution. He's not the one that's going to calculate up all the numbers, but he's like, you know what? I, I can't calculate, but I can go look for a solution. And off he goes. And what does he bring back? A vendor? No. A rich man to buy food? No. Brings back this little boy. A little boy with a little bit of food. He brings him to Jesus. It doesn't seem like much, does it? What good is that? And sometimes I believe we feel the same way. We think we're unable to do anything major for God. Hey God, you know who I am? I can't do anything big for you. Don't overlook a simple task that can become mighty. 
simply inviting someone to to meet Jesus is a game changer. Andrew once again introduces somebody to Jesus. First it was his uh, brother Peter back in John chapter 1. He brings him to Jesus. And now he brings the little boy to Jesus. I'm curious how many of you in this room here today are here because somebody invited you to come to this church. I'm curious. Let's do this. I'm going to everybody stand up. Okay, go ahead and everybody stand up. Not in the notes, I know. Just when you're comfortable. Okay, now... If somebody invited you to come to True North, whether it was last week or nine years ago, okay, please remain standing. If you just sort of stumbled upon us on your own or you came and nobody invited you, have a seat. If somebody invited you, please remain standing. Somebody was an Andrew to you, and I am so thankful for whoever it was that invited you to our church. That's awesome. You can have a seat. What if Andrew had not invited this little boy? What if somebody had not invited you to our church? Some of you that sat down, you might have been the ones that invited the people to come that are here. You were an Andrew. This, this whole thing, sometimes, again, we overlook what Andrew did. It seems so simple, right? Let's go to the third character, the little boy. We, we get to this little boy, and what do we know about him? We had five barley loaves of bread, two small fish. And barley loaves were always was recognized as a simple food. It was the food of the poor. So poor people had barley loaves. So which led a lot of theologians to believe that this little boy comes from a poor family. And the fish that he had, theologian F.F. F. Bruce said this, while other evangelists use the ordinary word for fish, ichthus, John calls them asperia, meaning that they are too small, perhaps salted fish, to be eaten as a relish along with the cakes of barley. Small fish, like sardines. So the bread is poor, the fish is small, the boy is small. And, well, children, children in the biblical times were considered insignificant. I mean, even if we were to go to the passage in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 14, where it says one day some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could teach, touch them and bless them. Remember, I always usually read this passage when we dedicate our children. And uh, the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. When Jesus saw what was happening, he was angry with his disciples. He said, let the children come to me. Don't stop them, for the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. So we have this insignificant little boy with an insufficient amount of food, and he is so poor, 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 right? James Boyce said, we learn the insufficient from the hands of the insignificant become sufficient and significant when placed in the hands of Jesus. You see, in the hands of God, the significant are never useless. We know that God took dust, dust, dirt, seems so insignificant, and created man. We know that the jawbone of a donkey was put in the hand of Samson and he conquered a thousand soldiers. We know that a, a rod, a shepherd's rod in the hands of Moses, part of the Red Sea, did other miracles. We know that a sling in the hands of a teenage boy took down a giant. And we know that a poor virgin girl in a small remote town that nobody heard of and nobody knew her brought forth the Redeemer, our Messiah. The insignificant is never useless in God's hands. The disciples wondered, what good is five pieces of bread and two fish? What good is that? That's not a lot to work with. Does God need a lot to work with? No. 
God doesn't need anything to work with, but yet he chooses to take the insignificant and work with it. That's what is amazing to me. Be careful that we don't compare our talents, our gifts, what we have to offer, and saying, well, it's not much. Really? What you deem insignificant or insufficient, God says that is significant, that is sufficient enough for me, and I will use that for my good, for my glory, to do greater things. That's the way God works. And that's what he did with this little boy. Simple example. Pizza fundraiser the other night. I don't know, five, $600 maybe, $600 profit maybe made. So that $600 is going to a college scholarship fund. So that money, let's say it's distributed amongst, let's say, six kids. Well, that's only $100 per kid to send off to their college to use for the scholarship fund. Yes, but those colleges have college matching grants. So that college will now take that $100 and make it $200. That, to me, is significant, especially as a parent of a college student, okay? God just doesn't double like those colleges do. God multiplies what we give him. That's how God works. Psalm 31, verse 19 says, How great is the goodness you've stored up for those who fear you. You lavish it upon those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. God is a generous God. He wants to give us these things. He wants to take what we have and do something with it. And again, not for our sake, but for his sake. One more thing about this boy, and that is his generosity, because I want you to remember this was his meal. That poor little boy, it's out on the crowd of thousands of people, and he's about the only one that packed a lunch for that day. Andrew finds him. There's somebody with food. I mean, think about this. Had he found something better, I think he would have brought it to Jesus. That's all he found. This is this boy's lunch. You know what that boy could have said? The same thing that every else, little child says when they, one of their first words. Mine! Mine! You heard that before, parents? Mine! Mine! That boy could have said, this is mine. But instead he said, this is yours. You know what Jesus did with his food? Multiplied it. That boy got more than enough to eat that day, and he probably had some leftovers to take home for his family. To me, the generosity of that boy was overlooked. Look at verse, uh, let's read on, verse 10. Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said, so they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men numbered about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. Verse 12, after everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces, and they filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. God's supply was extravagant. I love it. He said, why don't you all sit down? Just have a seat. And like the role of the shepherd, sitting down in the green pasture, he was preparing a table for him. And he took those five pieces of bread and those two little fish, and he blessed God. He thanked God, his heavenly Father, and said, thank you so much. And what he did with it next, we don't know how it happened, but he multiplied it as he broke it. Again, he could have done any way he wanted to, but instead he took it, and then his disciples distributed it. He engaged other people in the involvement of what he was doing. And there's leftovers, 12 baskets. We started with something that could fit in our hands, and it ended up with 12 baskets of leftover. Our God is mighty. Our God is incredible. Worship team, would you come forward, please? 
When I think of this story, and there's so much to think about, probably one of the biggest things you know that, that, that comes to my mind is, is when how God wants to manage and work through our lives if we would just let him. The things that we think are insufficient or insignificant, God says, no, 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 that's sufficient enough for me, and that is significant to me. Some of you in this room right now, you're sitting there going, I was, I was hoping maybe God was going to work something in my life today. You know what? He is, and he wants to work through you. Maybe this isn't about you today. Maybe it's about what God's going to do through you. And you might say, but what do I have to offer to somebody else? A simple moment on a phone call to somebody who's hurting is huge. That is significant. A pat on the back, a hug, spending time with people, writing somebody something. God will lay on your heart what you need to do, but what you have, somebody else may need. And God says, let me take what you have and multiply that in the life of another person. Still think you're too young? How many kids in here under the age of 12 raise your hand? Awesome. Now, I know we've got children's church going on. You can put your hands down in third, uh, and some, but some of you are in here. I want to tell you a story real quick as we close about a 10-year-old. And a lot of you adults saw this 10-year-old. He's now 12. You saw him this week. He was a, a guest at the State of the Union address this week. His name is Preston Sharp. When he was 10, a couple years ago, Veterans Day 2015, he went to visit the, the grave of his grandfather, who was a veteran. And he got to the cemetery and he went to place a flag and some flowers on there, but he looked around and there were other veteran sites that had nothing on them. And he thought, why don't they have flags? Why don't they have flowers? Why aren't we honoring them? And he was upset. Now his parents told Preston, they said this, you can't complain about something unless you're willing to fix it. So Preston said, okay, I'm going to do something about it. So he started raising money for flags and flowers. And immediately, um, he started, as he started with his parents. And he said, Mom, Dad, can I vacuum our house? How much would you pay me for that? That's how he started. That's how he started his, his fundraising campaign, right? And he set a goal to, to have enough money to place a flag and flower on the graves of everybody at that McDonald's cemetery there in Reading, California. But the goal, the goal grew quickly because he said, I want to do this in other cemeteries in the county. And then it grew from that to, I want all the cemeteries between Reading and Sacramento, California. I want all those cemeteries to have flowers and flags on every veteran's gravesite. Now, Preston um, has now expanded his goal. And um, he says, I want to get into every state. That's his new goal. He's completed California, Nevada, Oregon, Virginia, and Florida. Now, as of January, this January, 2018, he's organized the placement of more than 40,000 flags and carnations on veterans' headstones. He's accomplished this with the assistance of people in their community. He meets with them. He shows them this is how we clean the headstones. This is how we replace the weathered flags. This is how we say thank you when we put down the flower, when we put down the flag. So he has this method with the carnations and with with the flags but he also goes to the veterans' homes and he listens to their stories. He takes veterans out to eat for lunch and dinner. He's 12. 
Preston even told his mom this past Christmas, that laptop I want for Christmas, I don't want it anymore. There's a veteran who has this dog. He's not allowed to have it anymore in the veteran's home where he lives. No dogs allowed. Can I have his dog for Christmas so that I can take it to him to visit and he can come visit it here? That's what he wanted for Christmas. Just a child. Just one action. See, when you give your passion, your gifts to God, this is what he can do through you to help others. Do not underestimate what God can do through you. You are not insignificant, and what you have is not insufficient. God takes that. He makes it significant. He makes it sufficient for his glory. Amen? Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are. God, today is not for us. It's for you. We sing to you. We, we read about you. And, and God, maybe there was something today that we needed to hear and we were blessed. But God, I pray that today we are reminded that when the need is great, when it looks beyond our control and we're figuring out how are we going to do this, we need to stop being like Philip and doing all the calculations and be like the little boy maybe and say, it's all I got, but I'll give it to you. And we'll let you have it. And we'll let you do the multiplying. We'll let you do the unexplainable. We'll let you take what we think is insignificant and insufficient and make it significant, make it sufficient, and do things in an incredible, glorious, awesome, and mighty way that we can't even explain. And we'll just step back and say, praise God. Praise God. Lord, we love you. We want to sing to you. In thy name we pray. Amen.